Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse number 10. The Bible says, And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed from my shears and given unto men whom I know not whence they be? So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him all those sayings. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. Uh, Nabal here, we read about Nabal. Nabal uh, is refusing to pay David for his service that he has offered Nabal. And David and his men are hungry. They are in great need. And Nabal will not uh, pay. He'll not pony up. And, and instead, he's accusing David of being disloyal to the throne. And so word gets back to David. And David says, boys, get your weapons. We're going to go and uh, take some people out. David's going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to try to remove Nabal and any uh, male figure connected to Nabal off the planet, wipe them out. And the title of the sermon tonight is this, The High Price of Arrogance. The High Price of Arrogance. We're going to see David battle with pride in this passage, but more uh, than David, we see Nabal's battle with pride. In fact, Nabal doesn't really battle with pride. Nabal just is arrogant. He's proud, and uh, God is going to punish him as a result, let's uh, pray and uh, we'll begin to unearth this story. For some of you, it'll be your first time hearing this story. It is a good one, and so buckle up. It's going to be good tonight. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the wonderful stories it has in it. It captivates us, but Lord, more importantly, it, it teaches us. It shows us uh, uh, errors that are made, and, and, and then, Lord, when folks get it right, and Lord, it gives us an example of how we're to live. And so, Lord, help us tonight to understand not only the story, but, Lord, the applications from the story. Lord, imprint them on our hearts in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Arrogance according to dictionary.com is defined this way, offensive display of superiority or self-importance. Overbearing pride, overbearing pride. Offensive display of superiority or self-importance. Pride is what you have on the inside. Arrogance is how pride is displayed on the outside. Pride is what you feel inward. Arrogance is how it is expressed outward. Um, I have just a handful of thoughts I want to share with you by way of introduction. In fact, if you want to flip that half sheet over and write these down, I would encourage you to do that. The first thought I have here is that God hates pride and arrogance. God hates Pride and arrogance. Now, Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, the Bible reads, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. There's a colon after the word evil. We're getting ready to have evil uh, described here. Evil is being described. So if the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, evil is defined in Proverbs 8, 13 this way. Pride, or rather described this way, pride and arrogancy. And the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. 
pride and arrogancy. Did you catch that? If you fear the Lord, then you hate evil. Uh, then Solomon defines evil as, uh, as, and it lists, and it lists pride and arrogancy. Pride and arrogancy. If you fear God, uh, then you will hate arrogance within you. If you fear God, you will hate pride within you and its display of arrogance outward. Uh, you will loathe it. You will detest it. When you see it within yourself, you will immediately confess it and get rid of it. God hates pride and arrogance. Here's another thought. Uh, pride and arrogance cause problems in our relationship with God. Pride and arrogance cause problems in our relationship with God. Psalm chapter 10 and verse 4 says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Uh, the wicked is filled with pride. The wicked is filled with an arrogant attitude. And when you are arrogant, when you are lifted up in pride, you are following the model that got Lucifer thrown out of heaven. You are following the model of the devil. You will not seek after God. When you are proud, when you are arrogant, there is no need to pray. There is no desire to pray. Uh, you shrug your shoulders at the thought of prayer because you are lifted up highly so within your own eyes. And be careful, be careful, those of you that are proud, your arrogance is showing. Your arrogance is showing and it is causing a rift between you and your God. It is causing, uh, it is causing fallout between you and God. There is no depth of relationship between you and God. God hates pride and arrogance within us. But notice not only does pride and arrogance cause problem in our relationship with God. Notice the third thought by way of introduction. Pride and arrogance cause problems in our relationship with others. Pride and arrogance cause problems in our relationship with others. Take your Bibles over to Proverbs 16. Hold your place in 1 Samuel. Uh, Proverbs 16. We're going to look at three verses here out of Proverbs. Uh, all, all three verses are real close to each other. Proverbs 16 and verse number 18. Uh, when you are dealing with someone who is proud, you're dealing with someone who expresses that pride in an arrogant attitude. And by the way, you can be arrogant in what you say, but you can be arrogant in by not saying anything at all. You can be arrogant with uh, being aggressive in your spirit. You can be arrogant by being passive-aggressive in your spirit. Uh, uh, arrogance is displayed in a number of manners, not only what you say, but how you say it. Not only what you say and how you say something, but your body language can convey an attitude of being better than someone and superior to someone. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall. When you have a proud attitude uh, in that is getting ready to come destruction. I've seen people who are proud and arrogant and I see uh, nothing but a wave of destruction in relationship after relationship after relationship. They just can't seem to get along with people because of the pride within them and the arrogance that is displayed from without them. Turn over to Proverbs 13 and look at verse number 10. Proverbs 13 and verse number 10. Now, this is a verse I go back to regularly when I'm having a problem with someone. Proverbs 13:10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Only by pride cometh contention. Anytime my wife and I are not getting along, I realize there's a contention there. There must be, there ultimately is pride involved. 100% 
every single time when there is contention between me and my wife, someone or both of us have pride. You've heard the term, it takes two to tango, right? The dance phrase, it takes two to tango. Well, I tell my wife, I say, it takes two to tangle. It takes two to tangle. And when we're not getting along, it takes two folks to not get along. It takes two people to be offering pride into a problem usually. And uh, listen, I look at uh, other uh, uh, problems that uh, folks have in life, other contentions in relationships, and I realize there is pride and arrogancy there. And where there is a relationship struggle, write it down mark it down. Pride and arrogance can be found somewhere in the picture. One more thought by way of introduction here is that pride and arrogance bring down the punishment of God. Pride and arrogance bring down the punishment of God. God hates pride. Uh, uh, Pride uh, causes a rift in our relationship with God. Pride causes a rift in our relationship with others. But ultimately, God is going to punish Pride and arrogance. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11 and look with me at verse number 2. Verse number 2 there says, When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. Then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Someone who walks around with a proud heart. Someone that walks around with an arrogant spirit. Someone who walks around always promoting, self-promoting, and, and putting themselves up, and, and pushing others out of the way, and elbowing their way to the front. Uh, listen, eventually, shame is going to uh, come upon you. Shame is going to be felt uh, by you. Turn over to Proverbs 29, verse number 23. One more here. God punishes. Why does shame come uh, to those who are proud? Is it just, uh, as the Buddhists would say, karma? Is it just what goes around comes around? No, 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 no. God is orchestrating these things from above. When you are lifted up in pride, it is God who brings you low. It is God who brings shame upon you. It is God who makes sure that you that your pride is dealt with and punished because God hates pride. God punishes those things that we do that he hates. Look at 29, 23. The Bible says, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Now, I will say tonight there are various levels of being proud, various levels of being proud. And uh, some of you have heard the term narcissist, and I believe that to be a clinical term, a clinical level, a clinical problem. But someone who is a narcissist is very proud, and uh, uh, they're willing to uh, gaslight, and they're willing to burn down everything around a person, including the person themselves that stands in the way that they view as a rival. But can I tell you, while that might be the extreme level of pride and arrogance, can I say that tonight all of us battle with pride in here? All of us battle with some level of arrogance. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they're out of line. No one likes to be told that uh, they are in violation of something. No one likes to be uh, uh, reprimanded or corrected. Nobody in here tonight would want to be called into the boss's office tomorrow and just be absolutely nailed to the wall with things that uh, the boss receives that you've been doing wrong. You want to know that you're proud. Let that happen, and I guarantee you, Pride will bow up in you if it is there. All of us deal with pride. All of us deal with arrogance. And when we're treated wrong, how do we respond? How do we react? And uh, tonight we're going to look at the story of a man named Nabal, whose pride and arrogance brought God's wrath upon him and caused him 
to die. We'll see David's pride, how that it is injured. But as he has a heart for God, he is able to get himself corrected uh, before he follows through and commits murder against Nabal. And then we'll meet Abigail, Nabal's wife, who is gracious and lovely. And as the Bible says of a beautiful countenance, she saves her husband's life and appeases the wrath of David. A man or woman after God's own heart uh, may lose the heartbeat of God momentarily, but the heart stays tender and quickly finds its way back in line with God's heart. Pride and arrogance can knock you out of sync with the heart of God. Humility and contrition can put you right back in sync, right back in harmony with God's heart. David got it. And he thrived. Nabal got it wrong, and as a result, he lost his life. And I would say tonight that pride gets you out of sync with the heart of God. Humility and contrition can put you right back in sync, right back in rhythm with God's heartbeat. And listen, I believe tonight I'm preaching to a group of people. There is somewhere in you there is a desire to be in line with God's heart. You want to know what God's heart is, and you want to operate by that. I don't think you'd have come tonight. If you didn't want that, I think that tonight, deep down inside of each of us, we want to be in line with the heart of God. We want to know that God's will in our lives is being executed and that God is pleased by us. But boy, if we're not careful, pride seeps in. And the next thing you know, we're so far away from God and we're so out of sync with God. And we must confess that pride. We must deal with that arrogance and realize that arrogance has a steep price. Let's look at four main thoughts about this truth tonight. Number one, notice Nabal's idiocy. Nabal's idiocy. I know that's a strong word, but the reason why we chose the word idiocy is because Nabal's very name means fool. It means fool. Nabal uh, was a fool, just as his name described. And uh, was that Nabal's original name at birth? I don't know that. Uh, sometimes people pick up nicknames and uh, people can be nicknamed things that are even sinful or, or wrong, and uh, they can be a description of them, and they just embrace it and run with it. Maybe they enjoy being the, if you will, villain, and Nabal is what he's called in the Bible, and we'll see later that his wife says his name is Nabal, and he was properly named. And she's saying his name is Fool, and he's properly named. Uh, she knew she was married to a fool, and so when I say Nabal's idiocy, we're talking about a man who was a fool. We talk, we're talking about a man who operated as a fool, and we're talking about a man who did some pretty idiotic type things, if I could use that type of language this evening. Well, I'll show you what we mean here in just a moment. Notice letter A, his selfishness. His selfishness and arrogant attitude is always expressed by selfishness. An arrogant attitude is always expressed by selfishness. You show me someone who's arrogant, I'll show you a person who is selfish. They are willing to advance their own name and their own cause and their own desires at the expense of anyone and everyone. They don't care uh, who they have to step on to get their way. Uh, they will step on whoever is in their way to get their way. And such was the case with Nabal. Look down with me at 1 Samuel 25 and look at verse number 4. The Bible says, And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus shall ye say to him that liveth prosperly, Peace be both to thee, and peace 
to thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. And in the Hebrew culture, it would have been shalom, shalom, shalom. Verse 7, And now I have heard that thou hast shears. Now thy shepherds which were with us, we hurt them not, neither was there aught missing unto them. All the while they were in Carmel, or Carmel, and thy young men, and they will ask thy young men, and they will show thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand, unto thy servants, and to thy son David. And when David's young men came, they spake to Nabal according to all those words in the name of David, and ceased. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed from my shears and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? Now, in the beginning of chapter 25, verses 1, 2, and 3, we see that Samuel, the prophet, died. And David does not trust Saul, so David does not show up to the funeral. In fact, he ran further away, even further away than he had been prior from uh, from uh, Saul. And, and so in the ver- very first three verses, he is, he is still in hiding from Saul, so much so he does not even show up to Prophet Samuel's funeral. Uh, David, at this point in, in time in Scripture, is not technically an outlaw. Saul has made peace with him, um, uh, at least externally, at least on a shallow level. We saw in 24, made peace with him. And, uh, but David does not trust Saul, and so he has chosen to stay in hiding. David has 600 men who are looking to him for provision. So watch this now. They're living in the wilderness. Uh, they're, they're getting food anywhere and everywhere they can. They're hungry. In a lot of ways, they're homeless. They're struggling, and David is looking for whatever type of work he can find to take care of 601 mouths to feed. Now, we'll see later that these 600 men had wives and children who came along with them as well. And so this is a small city, a small population that David is in charge of taking care of. They're there to defend him, and in return, they're expecting David to help feed them. And so uh, Nabal is a rich man. He was a fool when it came to his people interactions, but uh, he was very smart when it came to his business savvy. He was a rich man and a farmer, and it was time to shear the sheep. And so uh, all hands on deck to shear the sheep. And so David and his men, they provided some sort of a security team to Nabal. Now, were they hired? The Bible doesn't say. Did they just volunteer their services hoping to get paid? It would sort of kind of seem that way. Uh, But David and his men provided uh, watch, care, and guard for these men both day and night. And once they had finished this process, uh, David sent ten men to Nabal and said, Hey, listen, we did something for you. Uh, You're probably going to have some kind of feast soon to celebrate the sharing of your animals. That would happen a couple of times a year. When you have that feast, can you invite us? When you have that feast, can we attend? Uh, If not, can you at least send some food our way to feed us? Nabal did not feed them. In fact, Nabal, the Bible we'll see in a minute, says he railed on them. He berated them with their words. He discounted David and who he was and claimed that he was the bad guy in the fallout with Saul and just ran them off and said, 
get out of here. So we see his idiocy. We see that he's being selfish. Notice letter B. We see his stigma. His stigma. Now, if all we had to go off about Nabal was that one story, you can say, well, listen, Nabal saw it one way and David saw it another way. That doesn't make Nabal a bad guy, except for the fact that Scripture tells us he was a bad guy. And even Nabal's own wife and servants tell us he was a bad guy. Look back at verse number 3. First Samuel 25 and verse 3. The Bible says, now the name of the man was Nabal. Look further down the verse there. Now, there's a description of Abigail. Skip past that. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. That word churlish is another way of saying foolish. He was foolish and evil. That means he sought out harm toward others. He was foolish and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Now we know we know Caleb, right? Caleb was the one who said, I want that mountain. Caleb was the one who stood with Joshua and said, we be able to conquer the promised land. He was one of only two people over the age of 20 that got to enter the promised land. And so um, Caleb, was a good, Caleb rather was a good guy. Nabal, not so much. And so I asked myself, well, why did they put Caleb, uh, why did they reference Caleb in this passage? And what I found is that the name Caleb actually means dog. Dog. And uh, that doesn't mean Caleb was a bad guy, but what it's saying, Nabal is acting like a dog. Look down at verse 14. Verse 14, 1 Samuel 25. The Bible says, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master. Look here. And he railed on them. He verbally beat them down. He railed on them. But the men were very good unto us, and we were not hurt. So not only did David's men not steal from Nabal, uh, David's men protected Nabal's men so there would be no harm, no hurt. Neither missed we anything. They made sure all of our stuff was left right where it was supposed to be. As long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields, they were, look here, a wall unto us both by night and day. David's men are watching guard during the day. Yes, he has another team of men come in to watch guard at nighttime when uh, under the cover of dark things could have been taken. All the while, the verse continues, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, uh, now therefore, know and consider what thou wilt do. For evil is determined against our master and against all that household. For he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. That word Belial there translates to our modern day word worthless. Worthless. He is such a worthless man. He is such a piece of garbage. He is not worth his own weight in gold. He's not worth anything. He is, this, listen, these are his servants that are talking about him this way. What kind of man was Nabal? Well, he was just as his name described, he was a fool. And he was lifted up in arrogance, and he was willing to step on anyone to get his way. We see, number one, Nabal's idiocy. Number two, notice David's indignation. David's indignation. Well, the men take the message of um, Nabal. The ten men take the message of Nabal back to David. I've wondered what that conversation was like from Nabal over to David. I wonder how David's going to respond to this. Uh, I, I wonder how he's going to handle this. And, um, you know, the Bible tells us that David was a redhead. And um, not to stereotype, but 
redheads can become hotheads, all right? And David was a redhead that became a hothead. Look down at verse number 12, where it comes to David, and let's see how David responds. So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him all those sayings. So they're repeating back to David what Nabal said. 13, and David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there were up, and they went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. So 200 men are left to protect the stuff. 401 men, counting David, are heading to war against Nabal's household. Chapter 24, uh, in chapter 24, which we looked at last week, we saw that David is temperate in his spirit and he's careful with King Saul. Remember, he's got him in the cave. Uh, uh, the robe is laying there. David has him in a vulnerable spot. He can kill Saul and instead he's temperate, he's moderate, he's careful. He just goes over and cuts off a corner of the robe of King Saul. Here, David is not so temperate. David's anger gets the best of him. David's anger gets him hot-headed, and he's quick to jump up, and he's going to run out and kill Nabal and all of the men in Nabal's household. Now, I'm just going to state this, and I believe this wholeheartedly. I'll state it emphatically. If you want to talk to me after the service about it, you can. But I believe that anger is always a sin. Anger is always a sin. It is not an emotion reserved for those who are called uh, 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 to be a child of God. Anger was not something that existed before the fall. It is something that came as a result of the fall. And um, uh, anger is something that gets us in trouble. Someone says, well, what about being righteously indignant? You cannot and will not find that phrase in the Bible. 800 times in Scripture you find the word anger, angry, wrath, or indignation. 500 or so of those belong to God. Every time God gets angry, uh, something good comes from it. The other 300 times when man gets angry, either the Bible doesn't say what the result is or something bad happened as a result. Oftentimes people even got angry on behalf of God and depression and great hurt and angst came as a result of that. Anger is not an emotion that Christians are called to. Ephesians 4 verse 31 says, let all anger and wrath and malice be put away from you. And so we're not to be angry. And so uh, David here got angry. And as a result, uh, he's going to put himself in the spot to potentially do something very ugly. Let me give you an A to B here about anger. Look here. When angry, we react instead of respond. When angry, we react instead of respond. We react instead of respond. Take your Bibles back over to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter number 14. I want you to see this. Proverbs 14. And look at verse Number 17, while you're turning there, uh, react is like you're sitting on the table at the doctor's office and they take that little hammer and they hit you in the knee and your knee, you know, your leg goes flying up, right? How many ever kicked a doctor doing that? Don't kick the doctor. I think they know to stand out of the way, right? But uh, that's a reflex, right? And when I talk about react, that's what I'm talking about. You're reflexive. You're, you're, you're just reacting in the moment, whereas responding, you take your time to think things through, and you, instead of being quick to react, you're slow to respond. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 17. The Bible says, He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. He that is soon angry, soon angry, dealeth foolishly. Uh, I wrote these things down. To react is fleshly. To respond is godly. Reaction is emotional. 
responding, reacting is emotional, responding is methodical. Methodical. Um, reacting demands something be done right now. Right now. Responding uh, uh, pauses and works a careful plan of action. Responding pauses and works a careful plan of action. Are you quick to react or respond? You see, when we're angry, we want to react right now. But when we respond, instead, what we find is that we will take our time and handle things in a way that is methodical and pleases the Lord. When your coworker or neighbor or client or spouse or child does something that causes you to feel anger, what you need to do is immediately pause and give those emotions over to the Lord. You say, well, Pastor Lejeune, you know, I hit my head on a, on a counter or um, uh, somebody said something that just infuriated me. I can't help the way I feel. And I would agree with that. You can't help the way you feel, but you can help what you do next. If I'm walking through a grocery store and I see a woman not properly clothed, I can't help what I see, but I can choose what I do next. You all with me tonight? Somebody does something that makes me angry, I can't help what I feel right then. But I can choose what I do at the very, very next moments. I can choose to give those emotions over to God and ask them to take them captive and remove them from me. And what we're careful, if we're not careful, we'll be hot-headed and we want to react. Word comes to David that these men, uh, uh, that, that Nabal has mistreated him and, and, and ran his men off and railed on them. And David, he reacts. He gets emotional. He says, men, gird up your swords. We're going to war. Instead of pausing and saying, let God be true and every man a liar, God will handle Nabal. And if we're not careful, we'll be quick to react and not quick to respond. I shared the story, I'm sure, at some point in the past when I worked under Pastor Curtis King at another church ministry, one of my former church ministries with him. I remember that there was something that happened in the church nursery. And it appeared that the nursery director was the cause of the problem. In fact, she was the cause of the problem. And I remember some of the staff men were just infuriated over it because their babies were in the nursery and, and, and they were really, really upset about all this. And they were running into Pastor King's office saying, you need to handle this now. And, and Pastor King said, well, we need to pause and we need to pray and we need to wait on God's timing and we need to make sure that we handle this in a way that's methodical and careful. And you know what? Instead of reacting he responded, and everything turned out just fine. You know, when uh, things aren't going your way at work, don't just storm in the boss's office and give him a piece of your mind. Take a breath and breathe. When your spouse is being selfish, your spouse is not giving you what you want in marriage, when your parents aren't handling you the way that you would like, instead of exploding in anger and letting them have it, take a half a step back and pray about it and say, Lord, Help me to respond in a way that pleases you. Help me to respond in grace and not react in anger. You see, when we get angry, when angry we react instead of respond. Notice letter B, when angry we punish instead of pray. We punish instead of pray. Look over at Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29 in your Bible. and Look at verse number 22. The Bible says, an angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. An angry man stirreth up strife. 
We stir up strife by taking God's role to punish wrongdoers, and we take that role into our own hands. Well, I, I'm going to punish them because they didn't treat me right. Maybe you'll say, uh, maybe if you don't say this out loud, at least you think it or your behavior is screaming it. That person mistreated me, I'll show them. That person cut me off in traffic, I'll get them back. My spouse is so unkind to me, I'll punish him or I'll punish her by being unkind back their direction. You know what that church member over there is? That church member is rude. I'll show them what rude looks like. Don't want to talk to me, want to just uh, balk at me, trying to be kind to them. And they want to uh, go over with their little clique and their circle of friends and talk. They leave me over here by myself. I'm going to show them what it's like to be rude. Are we trying to punish instead of pray? Or are we trying to pray for them instead of trying to punish them? Now, let me be clear. If you're a parent in here, you need to be punishing your children when they're out of line. If you're an employer here and your employees are out of line, there is a level of punishment that should take place where you have God-given authority to do so. You do it methodically and carefully. But when you don't have jurisdiction over someone and they've mistreated you and they're doing wrong and you take it upon you out of anger to punish them through your behavior, hey, let's just, let's just pause and back up here, all right? That never works. Never works. You know, I've been passive-aggressive with Angela at times. I remember years ago in our marriage, I say years ago because this really hasn't happened in years, but years ago her and I were so upset with each other, we went a whole week and didn't say one word to each other. A whole week. You say, Pastor, that's terrible. Oh, if you've been married long enough, you've done it too, all right? You've probably done it too. If not a week, you've gone two, three, four days. We went a whole week and we didn't even say boo to each other. We slept in the same bed, but we, I mean, we turned, you know, gave each other back, didn't want to talk. We worked through it. Amen. We got through it. We're madly in love today. Amen. In fact, I got to be careful not to get, you know, not, not to hug Angela too much in church uh, during the song service. Uh, we, we madly love each other. We're very in love with each other. But uh, you know what? That just doesn't work. I'm going to show her. I'm going to punish her. I'm going to be mean to her to correct her behavior. Nope. That never has worked and it never will work. You think, well, I'm going to give that coworker the cold shoulder and I'm going to show them. Listen, kill them with kindness. Bury them in prayer. Get on your knees and don't pray against them, but pray for them. Pray for God's will to be done. Pray for uh, their heart that's wayward. Pray for their attitude that's selfish. Pray for God to handle that in His way in His time. See, when we're angry, we are insane. In fact... You've heard people say, and this is improper English, but you've heard people say, that makes me mad. Do you know that's not proper English to say, that makes me mad? That makes me angry is proper English. But in a sense, when you say that makes me mad, that word mad uh, in its truest definition means insane. Did you know that anger really is temporary insanity? You are behaving in a way that is so irrational. I wish uh, you could have a video of yourself when you're in a temperous rage, mute the volume and just watch. You look like you look like a fool. You're indignant. And you're attempting to punish when that punishment does not belong to you, it belongs to God. You're trying to do God's job. No. Uh uh-uh. uh. You back up, you bend a knee, and you pray. 
Here David, he's got his sword, he's got his men. He's heading to take Nabal out because Nabal has wronged him. Now, in David's defense, he's hungry, he's tired, um, uh, he's, he's uh, uh, out on his own, and, and, and uh, he has all of these people that are already thinking the worst of him. And, and Nabal uh, mimics many of those talking points, which irritates David that much more. But no excuse, David. You are called to be temperate in your behavior. You're called to be in control of your spirit. Number one, Nabal's idiocy. Number two, David's indignation. Number three, notice Abigail's Intervention. Abigail's intervention. Look with me at verse number 3. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 3. Here we find the hero of the chapter, and it's Abigail. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. It says, And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. This lady had brains and beauty. Uh, she was both beautiful and she was very smart. And uh, she had great uh, a great sense about how to handle things. And so let's see how uh, Abigail steps in between David and Nabal and uh, prevents any David from doing anything uh, anything rash. Let her A notice her plea for grace. Her plea for grace. Look down with me at verse number 23. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 23, the Bible says that when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, this worthless man, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand. Now let thine enemies and they that seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now this blessing with uh, uh, which thine handmaids have brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. We'll get the rest of that verse in just a moment. Here, what's happened is that David has gathered these men, and he's heading down to Nabal's house, and he's going to kill Nabal, and he's going to kill every single male connected to Nabal. And uh, the servants, his children, uh, anyone who lived under that household, David's going to go in and just wipe out the men. And and Abigail gets wind of it, and she uh, prepares a large feast, and she meets David on the road, in the way. And notice here, she gets off of her horse, off of her donkey. The Bible word is asked. She gets off and she falls down in the dust. She's on her knees there in the dust. David's up on his horse. And uh, there, uh, Abigail is pleading and saying, Let my husband's folly be on me. Punish me. Don't punish him. I did not know about uh, about the your men uh, and, and the service they offered, or I would have done my part. I'm begging you. I'm pleading you for grace. Please don't take this out on my husband and the family. Letter A, we see her plea for grace. Letter B, her pronouncement of respect. Her pronouncement of respect. And I want you to notice up here uh, something that is just so neat and so valuable. And, and really, David is starving 
at this time. He's starving a couple ways. Notice underneath her pronouncement of respect, notice that she met his physical need. Look back at verse 18. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 18. The Bible says, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched corn and and hundred clusters of raisins and 200 uh, cakes of figs and laid them on asses. There she is with, um, uh, there she is with all of this food and she's at, on her knees in front of David and she's begging for forgiveness and David can smell the roasted lamb chops over there on the horse and David can see the spread of food that's there and isn't that what David wanted from Nabal to begin with? Isn't that what David wanted? He was hungry. He's malnourished. Now, malnourished. He's starving. He's looking anywhere and everywhere he can to get his hands on food. And here Nabal has brought him a feast and she met his physical needs. She's showing him respect. She's saying to him, David, you are worthy of this food. I have taken the time to prepare it. Here it is. Listen, men are built with a need to be respected. Many of you attended our Love and Respect couples conference. If you missed it, you really missed it. I mean, it was a an incredible conference. And in that conference, we talked about how that women have a deep desire to be loved and men have a different desire to be respected. And here David is not feeling respected by anybody. Saul has run his name down in the ground and uh, he's one of the most hated men in all of Israel at this point. He's living in caves and things are probably not as bad as he's envisioning them to be. How many of you have learned that when people are complaining about you, far more people love you than complain about you, but the complaining is what you hear. You know know what I'm talking about tonight? The complaining is what you hear. Uh, Those who are discontent oftentimes have the loudest voice. And that's all David's hearing is the discontentment. That's all David's hearing is the bad. And David is tired. David is hungry. And here comes Abigail, this beautiful woman who gets down on her knees and says, David, I believe in you. David, I've prepared food for you. David, I know you're hungry. Here's some food for you to eat. But not only... Did she meet his physical need? This is my favorite part of the entire chapter. She met his emotional need. She met his emotional need. David had a need to be emotionally respected. David had been in a shell marriage with Michael, uh, Michal, who did not, in my opinion, truly love him. And even as we'll see later in the chapter, she had been taken away from him. And so now David is without a wife. David is alone. and, And David had emotional needs that deeply needed to be met. Look at verse 28 and look at what Abigail says to David there on her knees as David's up on his horse. She says, I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Look here, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord. Notice the lowercase L on the first Lord, the uppercase L, because my Lord, because my Lord, because David, you fight the battles of the Lord. You remember what? Um, uh, Nabal had said, Nabal had said, uh, you're just another uh, fugitive that ran away from Saul. You just broke away from Saul. Lots of people break away. You're, you're, you're just a no good scumbag. And Abigail turns around and says, no, you are fighting the battles of, of, of heaven. Look at the next part of the verse. And evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. Not only are you fighting for the Lord, David, I believe that you are a man of integrity. David, I believe that you are a man of great character. 29, 
Yet a man is risen to pursue thee, that's speaking of Saul, and to seek thy soul. Look here. But the soul of my Lord, I love this, the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. Isn't that what salvation is? Isn't that what salvation is? When our soul is bound in the bundle of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here she's saying that you are wrapped up in the love of God. Here, you are bundled up in the life of the Lord thy God. She's saying you are on the Lord's team and doing so in such an eloquent way. Let's look at the verse that says, In the soul of thine enemies... Here again, she knows what she's doing. Them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. Well, David was known for a sling, was he not? Didn't he take that sling and kill Goliath? You know what she's saying here, David? You don't need to worry about avenging yourself against Saul or anyone else for that matter. The Lord has a sling, and He's going to sling your enemies right out of that uh, middle of that sling. God will take care of you. God will provide for you. Just as you used the sling against Goliath, God is going to use the sling to defend your honor, David. I believe in you, and it shall come to pass, verse 30, when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he had spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel. Look here. She's saying, David, I believe that you're going to be Israel's next king, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, uh, either that thou hast shed uh, blood causeless, oh, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. Uh, She's saying to David, David, I know that your name is mud in Israel. I know that you are not popular right now. I know that you're low. I know that you are lonely. But David, I believe that you will be Israel's next king. And, And at all of this need being met, all of this respect from her being breathed to David, David went from a, temp, a murderous rage to cool, calm, and collected. Abigail, through her respect to David, brought him back to a point of sober-mindedness. Look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. Blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which hath kept me this day from coming to shed blood, and from avenging myself, with mine own hand. She took him from uh, temporary insanity back to sober-minded sanity. Verse 34, For in very deed is the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hadst hasted and came to meet me. Surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall or any of the men. So David received of her hand that which uh, she had brought him and said unto her, Go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice and have accepted thy person. David was determined to seek his own vengeance, but God used Abigail to communicate what to him? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Hey, David, instead of reacting, let's back up and respond. Hey, David, instead of seeking to punish your enemy out of anger, let's back up and let's pray. We see letter A uh, tonight. We see uh, the, the, uh, the, her plea for grace. Her plea for grace. Letter B, her pronouncement of respect. Letter C, notice God's punishment of Nabal, God's punishment of Nabal. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. David did not need to kill Nabal. God's going to take care of Nabal. Look at verse 36. The Bible says, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house 
like the Feast of the King. So he's thrown this massive party, this massive drunken party. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. So she comes in the house, this party's going on, she stays away from him, he's drunk, he's, 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 he's acting like a crazy drunk man, and she just lets him be 37, but it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal. So he sobered up, and his wife uh, had told these things that his heart died within him and became as a stone. What happened here? He had a heart attack. She said to him, David was going to come kill you, and I stopped him. I stopped him from killing you. And immediately he had a heart attack. And he became as a stone. He was breathing air in and out of his lungs, at least at this moment. But he was uh, unresponsive. He was in a vegetative state. Look at verse 38. And it came, to pass after ten, uh, it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. I would encourage you to underline that phrase. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. God took this stiff-necked, arrogant man and gave him a heart of stone. David humbled himself. What did David do? He humbled himself and he let go of his pride. He said, you know what? I'm angry in my pride and I'm reacting in pride and, and I'm going to get vengeance in my pride. And Abigail came along and said, David, she very graciously said, David, please don't do this. David, I believe in you. I respect you. Uh, listen, one day when you're king, this naval guy will have meant nothing to you. Whether you kill him or leave him alive, he will meant nothing to you. You will one day rise to be king. Let God sling your enemies out of the slingshot. Don't you worry about them. And, and because of Abigail's advice, David backed down. He got his heart back in line with God's heart. And then what did God do? God stepped up and he took care of Nabal. God took care of of Nabal. Can I just say to you tonight, if there is someone in your life who has mistreated you, someone in your life that has wronged you, you belong to God. You belong to God. Sometimes when I have couples in my office that are not getting along and they're being mean to each other, just being flat mean to each other, I'll, I'll, I'll let them, uh, I'll let them uh, go, the emotions flare for a moment or two, and, and then I'll, I'll say, let's take a time out, let's pause. And I'll look at the, the, the sir and I'll say to him, I'll say, no, sir, I want you to remember that your wife is a child of God. That means that God is her father. When you mistreat one of God's children, he doesn't take real well to that. And ma'am, that husband of yours is a child of God. He's God's precious child. And when you're taking, treating him in such a manner, boy, God doesn't take well to that either. Listen, David was a child of God. Nabal was mistreating David. David did not need to avenge himself because David had a God who could do that for him. God's punishment of Nabal. Sometimes we limit God's uh, effective hand of punishment on our enemies because we try to jump in and do it for him. And then we just make a mess of things. Let's look at, lastly, quickly, number four, notice David's invitation. David's invitation. 
Look back at verse 39. We're going to pick up, pick up uh, right where we left off reading uh, prior. Verse 39, it says, And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spake unto her, saying, David sent us unto thee uh, to take thee to him to wife. And she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers. These are her bridesmaids that went after her. And uh, she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. Wow. We see letter A, his sudden marriage, his sudden marriage. I've shared the story about the moment I fell in love with Angela. The moment I fell in love with Angela was when she breathed in my direction that I believe in you. I believe in you. I respect you. I believe in you. And that drove me to a place uh, where I fell in love uh, with my now wife. And, and listen, what did Abigail do with David there, she got down on her knees and she said to him, David, I respect you. David, I believe in you. And for David, when he heard this out of the mouth of this beautiful woman, for David, it was love at first sight. But Abigail was married. And I read one commentary that described this relationship between Nabal and Abigail as beauty, or rather, beauty in the beast. Beauty in the beast. And some would say, well, why did Abigail marry Nabal, and if you know your Bible, then you know this marriage was probably arranged. It was probably arranged. Back then, that's what happened. Well, why would a beautiful Abigail been put with Nabal? Well, Nabal came from money. And Nabal had money, and that's probably why. The, uh, the parents of Abigail were probably paid, and I'm doing some surmising, some speculating here, but uh, the parents of, of uh, Abigail were probably paid pretty good, a pretty good bounty uh, in order for that marriage to take place. And, 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 and Abigail now is a free woman, as a widow, and, and David is in love with this woman, and he sins to have her come become his wife. And uh, Abigail would serve as a wonderful wife to David. She was uh, both beautiful to be looked upon, but more importantly, she was wise, and she helped keep David grounded, and she helped keep David rational and sane. We see his sudden marriage. She became his helpmeet. But letter B, we see his sinful mistake. His sinful mistake. Uh, As I said in the the very beginning of the message, David gets it wrong, and then he gets it right, and then he gets it wrong again. This sort of seems to be the theme of David's life. Look at verse number 43. The Bible says, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were also both of them his wives. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to uh, Faulty, the son of Laish, which was of Galam. Now, David had a double wedding, but this wasn't a double wedding like we have today. All right, you see, you know, a husband and wife over here and a husband and wife over here, maybe twin sisters or something they are getting married and they'll have a double wedding. This wasn't that kind of a double wedding. David was marrying Abigail and this other girl, who I have a hard time even pronouncing her name, at the same time. And um, you say, well, that's polygamy. Yeah, yeah. And that's a sin. You say, well, did David know it was a sin? Um, well, there seemed to be a lot of Bible doctrine known even in the book of Job when they didn't have a Bible written. And so I have to think that David probably knew that this was wrong. And uh, David is committing some sins here. By the way, David would be a terrible father. 
a terrible father. And everything that David got right in his life, when it came to parenting, he didn't do so good of a job. Part of the reason why David was such a terrible father is because he had such a dysfunctional home with so many wives and not following God's perfect plan. And in all of that, that would lead him, his lust would lead him eventually one day to having committed murder and he would be prohibited from building the temple because he could not control his own sexual lust. Uh, and so David, uh, we end the story as the chapter did here, on a sad note that David, after all of these victories, he enters into a polygamous marriage. God desires humility. He desires humility. When we're consumed with pride, it oozes out in the form of arrogancy. Let's finish the message in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13 tonight. Turn over there. We'll finish with that. God calls pride and arrogance evil. How do you and I combat this? Well, you have to get your heart in sync with God's heart. You get your heart in sync with God's heart. Proverbs 8, 13. Uh, uh, we're going to read in just a moment here. Confess your sin. You get your heart in sync with God's heart by confessing your sin, walking with God. You need to fall in love with God's desires, and you need to fear Him. You need to fear God. Look at Proverbs 8. In verse 13, let's read it out loud together. Can we do that? Here we go. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. If you fear the Lord, then you hate evil. You hate pride and arrogancy. Oh, yes, we should hate it in others. But before we get busy pulling the beam or the mote out of someone else's eye, we need to focus on the beam of pride and arrogancy that's in our own eye. May God give us a heart of humility. Because a heart of humility is a heart that is in line with the heart of God. A heart that's in line with the heart of God is a heart that pleases God. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Every head bowed, every eye closed.